Times. TheCooperageProject.org And from listeners like you who donate at WJFFRadio.org Good evening. Welcome back to the Local Edition News and Information to keep you connected in the Catskills Northeast Pennsylvania. I'm your host, Jason Dole. I guess I shouldn't say welcome back. You might not have ever heard another edition of the Local Edition. And if so, welcome to the Local Edition. I'm not going to be your host very long, though. Tonight is the first Tuesday of the month, and that's when we hand things over to Bill Williams. Bill Williams is live and ready to go, and so is his guest. So without any further ado, it's time for the Kingfisher Project Information Against Addiction here on Radio Catskill. Welcome to the Kingfisher Project, information and awareness about the heroin and opiate epidemic. I'm Julie Pazal. The Kingfisher Project began in memory of my daughter, Rebecca Jean Pazal, who was shot and killed due to her heroin addiction. At her memorial service, her former teacher, Mr. Okazalik, read an essay she wrote. It was about a bird, an injured Kingfisher bird that she found and rescued when everyone else had given up on the bird. In that spirit, our community came together and formed the Kingfisher Project. Since 2014, we have been raising awareness about the drug and opiate crisis in our listening area and around the country, right here on Radio Catskill. Here is Bill Williams. Thanks, Julie. My guest this evening is Claire Miller. Claire is a Master of Interior Architecture student at Boston Architectural College. She lost her younger brother, Ethan, to fentanyl poisoning in 2019, which has pushed her to take her degree path in a new direction. I'd like to talk about that whole story with Claire. Claire, welcome, and thank you for joining us. Thank you, Bill. Happy to be here. Um, take us back to the beginning. Um, I, what, what, specific, what specifics can you tell us about Ethan's fentanyl poisoning? Um, so it was January 15th, 2019. And mind you, this is a time where fentanyl wasn't in the news all the time. Like it was kind of when it was starting to become an issue. And um, he had gotten a pill from someone who wasn't a pharmacist. And he thought it was Xanax. And so when he took the pill, it turns out it was all fentanyl. And that's what ended up killing him. Um. Had he had any experience with with drugs of any sort before, or was this just random accident? I hate to use this word, but recreationally, um, really not nothing like no opioids before. Um, he like drank and kind of recreationally used drugs. I think. Right. Right. Um. Now. At the time, you were not an architecture student at the time. You were working a another job, so to speak. Yes. Am I correct? Yes. Um, but his death led you to think. What? Uh, tell us a little bit about how that and how that his death impacted your thinking. Yeah. So I was working in marketing when I graduated college. I went to undergrad at Emerson College. And so I was working at a marketing firm um, and just kind of like following the professional path that I thought was the right way to go. And when Ethan passed away, I kind of realized, hey, life's really short. 
um, I want to do something I'm interested in. And I wasn't even sure what I was going to do. And I always had an interest in design and architecture, but it was more of like a passion than a, like what I thought would be a career for me. Um, so when I quit my job, that seemed kind of impulsively to quit. Um, I applied to a master's program at Boston Architectural, and then I started in September 2020. So were you living in Boston or the Boston area at the time? Yes, I was living in Boston. And then when you at, at Boston Architectural, um, one of your professors was a man named Mike Williams. No relation, right? Yes. Yes, he was. I mean, no relation to me is what I should have said. Yes. <laughs> Yes, he was one of my professors um, my third semester. Um, he was, however, a high school classmate of mine, and he uh, had us connect, and that's why you're on the show tonight, or why I invited Claire to join us tonight. Um, you had, when when we've talked before, you had a, uh, early on in your time, in your studies, you had an outside speaker come in who really inspired you. Can you yes. tell, us, tell us about that? Yeah, so obviously this was the height of COVID, so school was remote. And I remember in the first week of school, we had a guest lecture from this woman named Kia Witherspoon, and she's a really forward-thinking designer, and she's like a huge pioneer in design equity and like a really big advocate for equitable design. And she was talking about prison design, and I kind of had this aha moment when she was speaking, and I connected it to what like what she was saying to, oh, how could I apply this to substance use disorder facility design? Because I know it's such an issue and like losing my brother the way that I did. Um, it was a passion of mine to help in some way. And I really connected the dots about healthcare design and behavioral healthcare. So we're talking about a real eureka moment. Yes, definitely. <laughs> so that you say that was, a, well, that was early on. Uh, and you met Mike in your third, did you say third semester? Yes. So how long is your course of study? Um, I'm done this May. So it's been three years. Okay. And right now, right now you're working on a, uh, I don't know what to call it. Is it a, a, a final project, project, an independent project? A... Yes, it's my thesis project. Okay. And what is it? What will it be? Um, as of right now, so we have to pick a site in Boston. And so what I'm doing is I'm doing a site that's going to be a detox facility um, and a residential like inpatient facility and long-term supportive housing for women who have substance use disorder and children. So this is a real facility that you that you're designing for? No, it's so it's like hypothetical, but we have ah. to pick a real site, like an existing building. Oh, okay. So you have to take. I'm I'm curious. Where is the uh, Where's the site? Where's it located? The one that I selected is in South End, which is actually an area in Boston that sees most of the opioid epidemic um, because of Boston Medical Center. It's kind of a known area, so I picked somewhere that's removed from that hot spot, but also accessible enough so that people can access necessary services. And so did you actually have to walk around, drive around to scout out a place? How do you find a, 
How do you find a location to even think about? Um, yeah, I had to drive around when I was home in Boston um, in the fall. I selected the site. And so some driving around and I kind of had an idea that I wanted it to be in that neighborhood or really close to that neighborhood too. So do you, do you get access to the site? You must have, do you have to take pictures and measurements and all sorts of stuff or. Yes. And I actually had the, I connected with the architect. He was a graduate from my school. And so he sent me all of the floor plans of the site, which was super helpful. When, uh, when was it first constructed? Um, it was constructed like years ago in like the eighties. It was kind of like a factory like space. And, um, they recently redid it in 2019 actually, and made it like a mixed use residential and commercial space. So you're rewinding the clock to 2019 as if that never happened and you're doing it the way you would imagine seeing it. Exactly. Got it. And what does that incorporate? Um, so obviously like a detox facility. And then I'm also doing um, a medication assisted treatment office and clinic. And then I'm also doing a respite unit, which I think is really important and something that we don't see a lot. And basically a respite unit would be for people who are living like in the long-term residential area and say they um, relapse or something is going on and like they need to like kind of like take a step back. It's not even going backwards. It's just kind of like a pause. So they would be able to go there rather than being either like kicked out of the program or um, relapsing and just like leaving. So it kind of is like a safety net. Is that is respite your word or is that something you've picked up in your study? I like that word. It's something I picked up in my study, actually. Um, and there's a place in Florida that has respite housing connected with their recovery residences. And how long, how long would you envision somebody staying there as long as they needed to or? Yeah. Or a lot of places, like especially like sober living homes, what they do is they, if someone relapses, they say like, okay, you can come back when you have a clean drug test. And so, especially like with fentanyl in the game now, people have been like going back out and relapsing and then dying because of that. And so having like a respite there, people can go in until they're ready to like take a drug test and they can pass it and then go back into like whatever residential living they were in. So it sounds like a very much like a space that's non-judgmental. Yes, really supportive, non-judgmental, in a place where they can like really pause and kind of like regain focus. Um, what uh, are, do you have accommodations for live-in staff? Um, I'm kind of trying to figure out the staffing situation still, but yes, there will be accommodations, and that's another really important part too is thinking about obviously the well-being and like the healing environment that the user group and the people who are struggling have, but also the staff so that they can provide adequate care. How, um, how large a space are you considering? Um, I think total it's like 20,000 square feet. It's pretty big. Wow. <laughs> yeah. 
And how many people would gee, it'd be so nice if this, if this just came to be, but how many people do you envision it ultimately being able to treat? Um, I guess it depends on if people, this also would be kind of far-fetched, but being able to have children in the same facility there. Um, but I don't, anywhere from like 20 to 30 at a time, because what's important too is like not is to give people a home like environment so that they're not all kind of like squished in. So it's not that institutional feeling. Yeah. Yeah. You must've had to do, you must've learned a lot about addiction and how people are treated and the attitudes and the stigma that, that people who are using feel. Um, you must have had to do a lot of research before you could even think about a floor plan or a space or anything else. Yes. I just actually um, finished a 100, over 100 pages of thesis research. So it's been a lot. and But it's interesting because I've learned a lot of how to apply color theory, biophilia, which is like access to nature or a natural environment, um, multi-sensory design and like, trauma-informed design and a bunch of other concepts too, to like these type of environments. And so researching the disease and then also researching how like all the different types of design methods that people can use to respond to the, this disease is really important in connecting those dots. Um, you said trauma-informed design, is that correct? Yes. What tell us a little bit, a bit about that? What is that? So it's it's interesting. It's kind of like still people are still developing it to some degree. Um, but it's kind of how we hear about trauma informed treatment and like trauma informed therapies. So an example of it could be, you know, having natural light or having a sense of certainty about what's around you. So let's say having like clear sight lines so that there's not furniture and like people can like see around them. So they feel safe. Um, different like theories like that. And also what I think goes really far away is like just simplistic and straightforward comfort. I think people think that good design has to be super luxurious and be like filled with nice furniture. But what really matters too, is that it's like accessible and it makes sense. Um. Is there any crossover between uh, prison design and, and 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 what you're doing or hope to do here? Um, I think so. I think I think like a huge piece of this is that if you want good outcomes and change, you have to give people the environment where they can like get on their feet and start that process. And again, like design really can't exist in a vacuum and like we can't just design not thinking about the services that are also offered so my where I kind of fall is aligning services and programs with design and making sure that they can coexist together and they work together have you 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 must have had to talk to people in the field people that are in the recovery field in the treatment field Uh, have you had many of those discussions Yes. And it's interesting because there's so many disconnects because a lot of people who I spoke to in the recovery field, um, especially at places that are like nonprofits or they don't have a ton of funding, they don't see 
as much of importance in design. And so it's kind of like making that argument. And then a lot of people who are at architecture firms, like healthcare design is just part of their portfolio. But this type of design, like the attention that this requires is so niche. So it's about educating people on both sides of it. Um, uh, do you find how difficult it is to educate people? Do you find there are people that are dismissive? They say, oh, this is just a young girl. She's studying architecture. What does she know? A little, but people also, especially because like, I've done excessive amounts of research, um, people want to understand it and learn more about it because it's, there's such a need for it now. So especially like recently, um, there's been a lot of people who are super fascinated by it and like want to hear more. So um, now you've started, you've got your own, you're on uh, Sixth Sense Design. What is Sixth Sense Design? Yes. So I wanted to kind of kickstart my career in my company. It's basically my company now. Um, again, because a lot of architecture firms that I met, they don't, it's just healthcare is part of their portfolio. And like, I wanted this to be so focused and six was my brother's hockey number. And I truly believe like there's, uh, like a sense that you need beyond the five senses to design for such a unique user group. So I decided that was my name and I started by working with a really established recovery residence program in Florida. And I learned kind of how they're run. And she also opened, she had six houses and she opened a seventh and they were all women's houses. And I saw how one becomes open and I helped with that design process, but I also just learned a lot about the programming and that was really beneficial. And since then I've been working with a nonprofit in this area and it's called the Robin Foundation and they do harm reduction, but they wanted to expand services and develop a recovery residence. So I'm helping spearhead the project. Do you, um, have you, not, not that, not that you should, but have you had an, any, an opportunity to see places that are not so well run or that are so poorly designed that make you shudder? Yes. Yes. What, uh, yes, definitely. <laughs> And I'm, I'm sure there are tons of them around, particularly if you're in Florida. Yes. And it's interesting, too, because in Florida, um, there's a huge there's a really bad rap in for Florida because it seems like the place where and there was a lot of illegal activity that went on down here surrounding the recovery community and the treatment community. Um, but I think it's so important to to like kind of move beyond that reputation so the places that are offering good care like they need to also offer a good environment and kind of change the conversation that people have been having about florida so it's all the more important that it looks nice inside and people feel safe and supported and comfortable um when do you think what are what are the chances of uh something not not this place in Boston, but when do you think you might get a shot at, at designing your first place for real? I don't know. Hopefully sometime soon. I really, my goal is when I'm done with school, I want to open my own recovery residence for women. And I want to do, I just want it to be smaller. So for like six women to align with six cents. But I think I want to, 
start there and then see how I can expand it. But I'm really passionate. And I think the best case study would be having my own and doing that. Now, when you say have your own, um, you're not thinking, are you thinking of being involved in treatment or just your, your own space that then you have, you find the people to come and make the place work on a day-to-day basis? I would have someone come in and be like a house manager. Yeah. And so they would help with like the group meetings and the treatment and stuff like that. But um, I would also try to be as involved as I could be in that and in the day-to-day because I think that's important. And I think that's where you learn the most too is from the people who are staying there and like listening to them. Because when you think about it, when we design someone's house, you listen to the homeowner and they say, Hey, I want this. This makes me feel comfortable. Like I enjoy this color. It's also important to talk to people too, who are in these houses because we want them to feel safe and comfortable. So it's the same types of conversations that have to happen. And I know for a fact, they don't happen a lot of the time. So. Yeah. Well, I remember we built a house 30 years ago and the architect was so thorough and talking to us about everything that we wanted and then making it become a reality. Uh, I suspect that people are less inclined to to go out and talk to people that may currently be on the street or uh, certainly hiding, if you will, or or in hiding, or if not literally hiding, unknown. Um, It's harder to come across those people and say, what would you like? What, what do you imagine being a nice place for you to recover in? Um, so that you're, I guess what I'm trying to say is you may be, you may be close to a client, but you're still a, a step or two removed from the actual people who will be using and functioning in this space. Yes. So what I, I actually, part of my thesis was I did an ethnographic study of people who are houseless. So observing their behaviors it was mostly all observation but seeing how they create a sense of shelter when they're houseless so i did people who are living on the street in boston and then i looked at a park in florida down here um and just observed what they do and kind of like how they create again like a sense of shelter and using that i studied how that would translate into design so it is it's huge to be able to observe people, even if you can't talk to them, but just see kind of what the patterns are and understand people's thinking and see how you can apply that to an interior environment. Uh, Do you have any examples of anything you've learned from watching people? Yeah. um, There's a huge architectural principle. It's called prospect refuge theory, and it's being able to take refuge and feel safe, but also being able to see out. So that's prospect. And I uncovered that a lot in um, my observations and people do that. And that's important. It has so many design implications. And again, like what I said before, like that also ties into trauma-informed design. So seeing those parallels and making connections and saying like, this is the best answer or like this is, I mean, there's no one size fits all approach especially like with a user group who's had so many different types of experiences it doesn't discriminate. But there are approaches that you can take that are generally more comfortable for people. What um, What's the biggest obstacle you've had in developing this project so far? Um, I guess it's knowing that 
there's so many things that could exist under the same roof or at least from the same provider that don't. I think it's like I felt some frustration, but it's only kind of driven my passion forward even more. Um, So I guess it's kind of like a pro and a con. But yeah, I guess just seeing like, oh, I want to design this place and then wondering, oh, does this exist somewhere? It at least didn't exist in Boston. So I think it's a, important that we keep having conversations like these and talking about like what the options are and like how much room for growth there is. Have you come across uh, in, in your research and stuff, have you come across any places that are at all similar to your idea that have been, been an inspiration in any way? Um, some places are, uh, there was one, there's one in Portland that it was pretty similar, but it actually, it wasn't as long term as the place that I wanted to design because people say, um, oh, they can stay a year, but as we know with like post-acute withdrawal syndrome, you still have symptoms after two years. So it's so important to have a place where people have a sense of certainty that they won't be kicked out after a certain amount of time. So I think it's like combining all of these different elements and saying this is the place where this can all happen and people don't feel uncertain about their future here. Um, when your project is all done and submitted, what, what happens? How, what's that process? I present it and it becomes my thesis so I can like, publish it somewhere, but I present it and I get critiqued on it pretty harshly. <laughs> Some, who knows, but um, we get a lot of feedback and it's kind of like, it's an iterative process. So like I might do another one a few years from now, but I'll graduate with that thesis. Got it. So uh, you mean you're going to be have tougher questions than the ones I'm asking you? <laughs> maybe <laughs> what um what's the most rewarding part of this um i think learning how a built environment and all of these things that i'm learning can be applied to really change the world like in my opinion i think I love luxury design. Like I like interior design. I think it's amazing. But if I can change how people live and if I could like change one person's life, then that's better than designing a million houses for me. So. Well, I think you're going to change more than one person's life. And (laughs) you're certainly people will remember uh, through you. They'll remember your brother and his life. Yes. Uh, I mean, this is really what you're doing is really a lovely memorial to him. Maybe that's, maybe you'd rather have me choose another word, but uh, that's the one that no, comes to No, you're me. right. Yeah, it is. Um, we've only got a couple of minutes. You've, you've been uh, designing something else and working on something else that's not a thesis, but it's going to come to fruition at the end of the week. Care to tell us anything about that? <laughs> yes, I'm getting married. Um, Huge shout out to my mom and dad because my mom has helped design the whole event. So that's going to be excellent. So I'm excited about that. <laughs> I would imagine you would be. Yes. <laughs> well, I appreciate I appreciate your coming and joining us on a Tuesday when you're getting married on a Saturday. Yes. Well, thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. Extraordinarily busy. 
Yes, for sure. Um, any final thoughts before we go? No, thank you for having me. And these conversations are important, so we should all keep having them. Okay. You've been listening to Claire Miller. Thank you so much to Bill Williams and Claire for the Kingfisher Project. Kingfisher Project comes to us on the first Tuesday of the month right here on the local edition. We'll return with the local edition tomorrow evening at 6.30 when we've uh, got Leah Mayo to give us the latest news and a weekly news roundup as well as uh, Work Shift Live. Cloudy at night with freezing rain possible in the evening. Overnight low down to 29. Very cloudy on the early and tomorrow. Maybe a little bit of sun later in the day. High 38. State of the Union address is coming up at 9 o'clock. Before that, we've got two hours of phenomenal music with Mr. Kusar Grace in the Music Emporium. So don't go anywhere here on a Tuesday night. This is Radio Catskill, public radio for the Catskills, Northeast Pennsylvania. WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello. Thank you so much for listening to Local Edition. Sign up for the Local Edition podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. Support for Radio Catskill comes from Bethel Woods Center for the Arts, presenting An Evening with James Taylor and his all-star band, Thursday, June 29th. Tickets on sale Friday. More information at BethelWoodsCenter.org. This is Radio Catskill. There are two warming shelters in Sullivan County, and both of them will be open every night of the winter season. The Monticello Warming Shelter is located at the Ted Strobel Recreation Center at 10 Jefferson Street, across from the Government Center. The Liberty Warming Shelter is located in the Liberty United Methodist Church, 170 North Main Street. Each shelter is open every night from 8 p.m. to 8 a.m. This is Radio Catskill, keeping you connected. WJFF Jeffersonville. W233AH Monticello. You're listening to Radio Catskill. Public radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania.